I think you can learn a lot about a person based upon what they do with this. Now, I want you to think about the last time you were in your car and things started getting low when it came to your gas. Are you the kind of person who as soon as it gets like in this range right here, like a quarter of a tank, you're looking for the gas station, you're pulling in, you're refueling? Or are you the kind of person who likes to see how low you can get to this or with this light on and actually make it in there? Now, I'm the kind of person in that second category. I tend to try to see how much I can get out of a tank. In fact, I find it awesome when I pull into the gas station and I get ready to fuel up the car and, and I have like less than a gallon left. Now, I'm not sure that's good for my car, but it definitely is something that I enjoy doing. And at one point in my life, it really uh, got me in trouble. I was in high school and, uh, you know, back in the dark ages back then, my friends and I opened up the newspaper and we looked for movie times in the newspaper and we found a movie at a time we wanted to watch. So we all got in our cars and we drove to the movie theater. I know that this all sounds like a long time ago because this is not what we do in 2019. We don't go to movie theaters. We don't look at newspapers for movie times. I know this is really different, but that's what we did back then. And so we got in our car, we're driving to the movies and to get to this one particular theater, we had to take this giant flyover to go over a highway. And right as we're getting to the top of the flyover, the bridge over the highway, everything goes out of my car. All the lights go out. All the power goes out. It just kind of all of a sudden, and I look down in my uh, gauge area on my dad's Buick. And this is what I saw. The power, uh, the, 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 the light had, had popped on and then gone off for the fuel. This was sitting like almost on top of the E and I'm like, oh my gosh, I ran out of gas. Now, luckily we had enough, but I'm going to go about 50 miles an hour over this bridge that when the power went out, because the gas was gone, we started just coasting down the flyover. I was able to throw my four-way flashers. My buddies were behind me. I pulled off to the side of the road. And as I stopped, I looked ahead and could see a gas station. And so we pushed my dad's Buick across three or four lanes of traffic and we pushed it into the gas station. I put five bucks in. We made it to the movie theater. We missed the previews, but we got the entire movie. And I've gotten a little bit nervous every time I kind of push it a little bit like that because I don't want to run out of gas again. I don't want to go through that experience again. And, and while it may be inconvenient, while it might put a damper on your day, while you might have to use your, your legs to push your car more than you ever have before if you run out of gas, there is a bigger problem than that, that I think that we're all facing in 2020, especially as we head into this last month of the year. And it's not that our cars are getting close to empty. The problem is, I think, for a lot of us, our hearts and our souls are getting really, really close to empty. Let's be honest, this has been an incredibly challenging year. Maybe for you, it's been your most challenging year ever. And if you were to think about a word to try to sum up how you feel with this being the reality of your heart and your soul, 
a word that might fit is the word weary. I know that when people have asked me, so how are you doing? Over text, over the last few months, a word I've used is, I'm weary. I've heard from some of you, I'm just, I'm weary. I'm exhausted. And I looked at the definition of the word weary, and there's four or five, and maybe you'll find yourself in one of these definitions. According to dictionary.com, weary means to be physically or mentally exhausted by hard work, exertion, strain, etc. That's how many of us are. We're, we're exhausted. Weary can also mean characterized by or causing fatigue. Some of us, we're, we're weary not just in our bodies, but in our emotions, in our hearts, and in our soul. You know, another definition of the word weary is to be impatient or dissatisfied with something often followed by of. Uh, so it's, it's not just that we're impatient or satisfied by it, but we're, we're, it's after we do something we feel weary. And then finally, to be weary is to be characterized by or causing impatience and dissatisfaction. If, if you found yourself in any of those four descriptions, then, then maybe for you, a, a good word to describe how you're feeling is the word weary. And I want to make this really, really practical, really, really personal. With some blanks, if you're following along on our notes you got from our website, there's a sentence that you can fill in right now. Or you could just type this up on your phone as you're watching. I feel weary of blank, and as a result, I'm blank. What are you weary of right now? You know, what is it that you're just uh, fatigued by, you're exhausted as a result of, you're impatient with, you're disappointed with, you're discouraged with? What are you weary of? And as a result of that weariness, you know, how would you finish the sentence? I'm blank. I'm frustrated. I'm annoyed. I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. You know, I'm down. What is that word? I feel weary of blank, and as a result, I'm blank. And if you can fail about that sentence, then I, I think we're on the same page, and, and we can have a conversation today. You know, I, I started working on this message and this series we're beginning today a few weeks ago. And what I do when I start writing about Christmas is often I'm writing about Christmas while it's really warm outside and really sunny outside and there's no snow outside. I, I began this practice when I lived in Phoenix because I would always be writing Christmas messages in Phoenix when it was 90 degrees outside, <laughs> which, is, which is just hard to feel festive when you're wearing shorts and a t-shirt and it's 90 degrees outside. And so I have this tradition where I write about Christmas you know, message, and I, I make some hot, hot cocoa or some coffee. I, I set up a candle that smells like Christmas. I turn on some Christmas carols, and it gets me in the mood. And this year, I started listening to Christmas carols earlier than I ever have. I, I, there's some Christmas songs that I just love. But this year, I was listening to one of my favorite Christmas songs. The song is called, Oh Holy Night. And it got to the end of one of the verses, and there was a line that just hit me different this year than it ever has before. And the line says, a weary world rejoices. A weary world rejoices. And when I heard that line, I said, that is exactly how I feel. 
Maybe for you, that is exactly how you feel. You feel weary. And what's hard is in this sentence, there's a huge juxtaposition. You have weary, and then you have rejoices. Now, most of us, when we feel weary, the last thing we feel is we feel like rejoicing. Most of us, when we feel weary, we, we don't feel like, you know, throwing a celebration or a party or being overjoyed. We tend to be the opposite direction. And yet in that song, because of the message of Christmas, the writer wrote these words that a weary world rejoices. So over the next few weeks, in the month of December, as we journey towards Christmas, we're launching a series called A Weary World Rejoices. And we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, why is it, how is it that we, as people who are weary, we, in a time in which we are weary, how is it that we can rejoice? Why is it that we would rejoice? And my hope is that you will find new meaning, new resonance, that you will find a infusion of joy in the midst of your weariness. Maybe even experience the presence of God in the midst of your weariness this year. So we're going to start out this series in the book of Luke. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it up, pull it out, and turn to Luke chapter 1. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Luke is the 42nd book in the Bible. It's one of four accounts of the life of Jesus. And the book of Matthew and the book of Luke include uh, accounts of the birth of Jesus and what happened leading up to Jesus entering into our world. And so we're going to bounce over the next couple weeks between Luke 1 and 2 and Matthew 1 and 2 as they tell us what happened when Jesus came into the world, what we celebrate as the nativity or the Christmas story. And so wherever you're watching, if you're able, don't do this if you're driving, Would you stand as you have a copy of God's Word, either on your phone or a physical copy? And we're going to read together Luke 5, 1 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, you can just watch the screen here next to me. Beginning in verse 5, this is what it says. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. When his, and his is Zechariah, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to Zechariah, don't be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will name him John 
there will be joy and delight for you and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous and to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Pray with me right now. Heavenly Father, we pray that in this season, while we are incredibly weary, while many of us are discouraged, disappointed, struggling, that you would show us a fresh expression of your presence and that we might see in the Christmas story the reason why these people rejoiced. And we pray that you might show us why we, a weary people, can rejoice too. In your son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, over the next three Sundays in this series, A Weary World Rejoices, what we're going to do is we're going to unpack and kind of flesh out and pull out some things that happen in this story that I think we tend to overlook. And we're going to follow a pattern each week. We're going to look at an answer that an angel gives to an individual as to the reason why they shouldn't be afraid. In each of the stories we're going to look at in this series, an angel's going to say to a person, don't be afraid. And then they're going to say why that is. They're going to give them an answer why they shouldn't be afraid. Now, in each of those accounts, that answer points us to, I believe, what they've been praying about, what they've been talking about with God. And I think our prayers and their prayers are an indication of what we're concerned about. I think the things that become burdens and concerns for us, they show up in our prayers. And I believe in these stories, the answers the angels give show the prayers the people were praying and ultimately the concerns that were burdening their heart. And so each week we're going to follow this pattern in studying each of these stories. So let's start out with the big message, the big answer that Zechariah gets from the angel. And that's this that your prayer has been heard. So here in Luke 1, we just read it. The angel shows up while Zachariah is in the temple. Zachariah is terrified. And the first thing the angel says is, do not be afraid for your prayer has been heard. Now I want to make two observations for you today about Zachariah's prayer but the prayers that Zechariah was praying that are, that are indicated by the kind of answer he got. If you're taking notes, here's the first one. Zechariah had been praying for two things. He'd been praying for a son, and he'd been praying for a Messiah. Zechariah had been praying for a son, and he'd been praying for a Messiah. The message that the, the, the angel brings Zechariah is that he is going to have a son. And the text tells us, I just read it for for you from the Christian Standard Bible, that they were well advanced in years. You know, if you were to do like a Bible art piece of Zachariah and Elizabeth, this is what they might look like. They, They have white hair. 
if you were to do a picture of Zachariah and Elizabeth in a modern sense, this is what you might see. I mean, they were elderly. They were well beyond natural childbearing years. And, Ze- and Zachariah and Elizabeth had never been able to have children. And according to the scriptures, that was, because, that was the result of something that was happening inside Elizabeth's body. Now, now in our day-to-day, infertility is an incredibly difficult thing. Some of you watching right now, you yourself have battled infertility. Some of you have friends, family that have battled infertility. And that is incredibly difficult. It is soul-wrenching. It is emotionally wrecking. And it has the potential to, to impact not only somebody's relationship with God, but the marriage, the relationship itself. I have seen marriages torn apart because of infertility. But what made infertility even more difficult in the day of Jesus was not just the struggle the two people were in who were trying to conceive, but the societal shame around it. See, in the day of Jesus, it wasn't just hard for the couple. It was hard to be in community because everyone looked down on you because to have a child was to be blessed by God. And if you didn't have a child, specifically if you didn't have a son, a male heir, it meant that your line and your legacy died with you. It was a terrible thing in the day of Jesus to not be able to have children. And so this moment with with Zachariah and Elizabeth is proof that very bad things happen to very good people. One of the biggest questions we ask when it comes to faith is why do bad things happen to good people? Yet we see here in the scriptures that this bad thing, infertility, happened to this good couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth. And so we have to reckon with and rumble with the fact that God allows bad things to happen to good people. And yet in the midst of that, God shows up and does something new and good and beautiful. Zechariah, the text tells us, was, was a priest. And in the day of Jesus, uh, priests served two weeks out of the year. It was kind of like the army reserves. You, you didn't serve all the time. You had two weeks, one week at a certain point of the year, another week, another point of the year, where you would come to the temple and serve. And this time when Zechariah is at the temple, they cast lots, which basically is a way of, of kind of determining a, a decision. It's, it's like, it's like ca- throwing dice or... or, or um, pulling straws, but yet they believed God was sovereignly at work within it. And so they cast lots to see who's going to go into the temple to, to light the, the incense that was the symbol of the prayers of the people. And in this moment in Luke 1, it is Zechariah who's chosen. This is likely the only time in all of Zechariah's life that he will do this. And so he goes into the temple He lights the incense and the text tells us that everyone is outside praying. Everyone is outside praying and what they're probably praying for, scholars tell us, and what Zachariah is probably praying for in the moment is a Messiah, a a, a promised one, a, a deliverer. Zachariah had been praying for a son, but he was also praying for a Messiah. You say, why is that significant? Because the people were living in dark times. We aren't the only people to be walking into the Christmas season in hard, difficult times. 
they were in hard, difficult times too. There was an illegitimate king named Herod who'd been put on the throne by the Romans. And he was not a great ruler, not a generous, caring ruler. He was a difficult, narcissistic, evil ruler. In addition to that, there was an oppressive foreign occupying force, the Romans. So the people of Israel, Zechariah, Elizabeth, everybody else, they're under this oppressive Roman rule. And there is a corrupt spiritual leadership who is guiding life in the temple, the Sanhedrin. This was not a serene time. This was not an easy time. This was a dark time. So you need to recognize that when Jesus was born, things were dark. And this Christmas, things seem dark. And yet Christ still came. Jesus came the very first time in the middle of darkness and difficulty and weariness. And this year, we're going to celebrate him coming in the midst of our darkness and difficulty and weariness. So Zachariah's praying for two things, a son and a Messiah. Here's the second observation. God heard both of Zachariah's prayers, but his answer didn't meet Zachariah's expectations. So God here says, the angel says, God heard your prayer. He heard your prayer for a Messiah. There's one coming. And he heard your prayer for a son. You're going to have a son. Now, Zachariah's first response is not overwhelming excitement, overjoyed. It's cynicism. He doesn't respond in faith. He responds in cynicism. He does not believe that it's possible because according to his worldview, the time has passed in which he can have a child. And his expectations and his understanding get in the way of him believing what the angel says. And we have the same problem today. So often, our expectations get in the way of us experiencing God. Our expectations get in the way of us experiencing God. See, all of us have expectations, All of us had expectations going into 2020. I mean, maybe you made a 2020 vision plan, a 2020 vision board. Maybe you set goals for this year. Maybe even when COVID started, you had a sense of of how it was going to go. And for many of us, this year has completely destroyed our expectations. But for many of us, we look at the world through the lens of our expectations And our expectations get in the way of us experiencing God. In in one sense, our expectations over time, what they do is they shrink our vision and our view of what God can do. And they limit that. I'll, I'll tell you that on a personal level. There were two instances in the last 10 years where I spent well over a year praying for God to do something praying for God to work in a specific way, praying for and expecting God to do something specific. And on both occasions, I didn't get what I expected. I didn't get what I was praying for. See, on both occasions, the grand total of about four years, I spent praying for a specific event to happen. What actually happened? God heard my prayer. In fact, he answered my prayer, but he did not meet my expectations. 
He did not do what I was praying and asking him to do. He did something that I didn't expect. And on both occasions, he did something that as I look back, was way better than what I was asking for. If he had answered my prayer, man, I would be in a world of hurt. I wouldn't be nearly where I am today. And I'm so grateful that God heard my prayer and answered my prayer. And I'm so glad he didn't meet my expectations. But in the moment when he answered that prayer and it wasn't what I wanted, I have to tell you, it didn't feel like to me that God was working. It didn't feel like to me that God was was moving on my behalf. It didn't feel like to me that God loved me, cared about me, was working for me. I love what Grant Patrick says about these kinds of moments. He says, God's ability to work doesn't hinge on my perception that he's working. God's ability to work doesn't hinge on your perception or my perception that he's working. And so if you're struggling right now, you're struggling this year going, man, I don't feel like God's working. I'm praying. He's answering my prayers. He's not meeting my expectations. Guess what? Your expectations and your perception that he's working is not the definition and the limit of what God can do. See, see what happens is that we have an opportunity to take our expectations and exchange them for humility. To not not look at the world through our expectations, but to look at the world through humility. And our humility leads us to trust God. You see, when you look at the world through humility, what you say is, you know what? I don't see everything. I don't understand everything, but I trust that God does. I don't see everything, but I trust that God does. I don't understand everything, but I trust that God does. And friends, what we experience in the world with God in the future is going to in large part depend on whether we're looking at things through humility or through the lens of our own expectations. And I just want to invite you this year, as you move towards Christmas and begin talking about a new year, what if you exchanged your expectations for humility? Now, I told you that we were going to look at an answer to a prayer, the prayer itself, and then the concerns or the burdens underneath that prayer. And that's where we're going to go next. Because if, if the answer was, God, God heard your prayer— and the prayer was for a Messiah and for a son, then, then what were the concerns and the burdens that were created by Zechariah praying both of those prayers for decades and not sensing that God was doing anything? The concerns that I believe Zechariah had were this. Does God hear me? Does God care? And is God real? You see, when you've prayed prayers this year, this month, this decade, and you've not sensed that God was hearing you or answering you, aren't these the three things that have bubbled up inside of you? Does God hear me? Does God care? Is God real? And these questions represent real 
genuine wrestling before God, the beginnings even of doubting God. Here's what happens next with Zechariah. In verse 18, after he hears this message from the angel, Zechariah says, how can I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Gabriel, I'm not sure if you know how this works, but we're past that stage. Here's what the angel says. The angel answered Zachariah saying, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. I want to make for you two observations about our concerns. If if these concerns, does God care? Does God hear me? Is God real? If those are your concerns, make two observations about those concerns. Here's the first one. There's a big difference between genuine wrestling and sinful doubting. There is a big difference between genuine wrestling with God and sinful doubting of God. And the reason why I know there's a big difference is that next week, we're going to look at the experience of Mary. And Mary, after hearing a message from the exact same angel, Gabriel, she raises a question to Gabriel, and she is not made mute for nine months the way that Zachariah is. See, Zechariah asked this question and the angel says, you know what? You're not going to speak until this baby is born. In fact, Zechariah walked out of that temple to that crowd that was praying and he couldn't say a word. And he doesn't say a word until his son is born and they ask him on the eighth day when they're going to circumcise him, what should his name be? He's, he's probably mute for closer to like 10 months. Can you imagine? From the first time you heard the word COVID-19 this year until now, you can't talk. That's what happened to Zechariah. Why the difference between Mary and him? Well, there is a big difference between saying to God, I don't understand how you will versus I don't think you can. And what Mary asked God is a reflection of, I don't understand how you're going to do this. What Zechariah says to Gabriel is, I don't think you can. In fact, I don't think God can. And that's the difference. There is a big difference between genuinely wrestling before God. God, I don't know how you're going to do this. I don't know how you're going to work this out. God, I don't see how this is going to happen. And I don't think you can. That's where sinful doubt comes in. And Zechariah, in that moment, shows that he had a very different view of angels and God than we do. See, when this angel comes to, to Gabriel, says that he's overwhelmed and afraid. Now, I think the problem on, on one level for us when we read a story like this is that we have a very different view of angels in our world than, than Zechariah did. In our modern world, we think of angels like this. We think of Clarence, It's a Wonderful Life, top five Christmas movie ever, in my humble opinion. And Roma Downey, you know, touched by an angel from the 90s. You didn't think of angels that way. They're, they're either, you know, kind of old and kind or they're, you know, pretty and quiet and soft-spoken. But in, 
But in the day of Jesus, the image they had of angels was of overwhelming power and might. Whenever you get a sense from scripture, all the way back to Joshua, Zechariah, these stories about Christmas, you see an angel and it is an overwhelming thing. It is an awe-striking thing. And yet Zechariah, in the face of that angel, says, Gabriel, God here representing, I don't think you can. And he spends the next 10 months in a quarantine of silence. And what's amazing is that in that time of silence, God does a work in Zachariah's heart. If you fast forward to later on in Luke 1, what you find is that when Zachariah tells everyone who wants to know what his son should be named, he says, John, he writes down, his name is John, and, and God releases the, the muteness. And Zechariah begins praising God. Now, let's just be honest. We're not all in church today, but we're all sharing this experience together. If God made you mute for 10 months, what is the first thing that would come out of your mouth when you could speak again? Would it be praising the one who made you mute? Or would it be anger, frustration? Ah, finally it's over. See, I think what happened over those 10 months is that sinful doubting became praise, worship, gratitude, faith. Because after he declares the name John, he begins praising God. And we see at the end of Luke what, what Zechariah praises God, what it, what it includes. I don't have it here. Well, what, what Zechariah says to God what Zechariah announces is the, the promise of what his son will do, the promise of what the, the one who comes after his son will do. And what happened while he was quiet came out while he spoke. So the question I have for you is this, before we move on to the final observation, is are you wrestling or are you doubting? Has 2020 led you into a genuine wrestle with God? God, I don't know how you're going to work this out. Or has it led you into the cynicism that Zechariah had where it's, God, I don't think you can work this out. And I just want to encourage you, this wrestling thing is honored by God. This doubting thing is dangerous and you need to wrestle with it before God. Here's the second observation about the concerns. What feels strange to us is central to the way God works. What feels strange to us in the story, what feels strange to us in our lives is actually central and key to the way that God works. Notice what Sharon Miller says when remarking on this passage. She says, silence and uncertainty and darkness and doubt seem so strange when they come. They leave us disoriented and disillusioned and unsure if God is there at all. Can you relate to that this year? I mean, silence and uncertainty and darkness and doubt, feelings of being disoriented, disillusioned, unsure if God is there. Like this is the experience of so many of us in 2020. We, we've been through this incredible line of challenges and difficulties. 
where God has felt distant, where we have felt disillusioned, where we have felt discouraged. And, And when those feelings come, they shake us, they turn us upside down, they surprise us. They're not comfortable or things we look forward to. But she goes on from there. She says, silence and uncertainty and darkness and doubt seem so strange when they come. And they leave us disoriented and disillusioned and unsure if God is there at all. But Advent. Advent reminds us each year that it is our comfort and control that is strange to the story of Jesus. What we find at the dead center of our Bibles is not answers or certainty or resolution but waiting. See, the season that we are in right now is called Advent. Advent means arrival. And the season leading up to Christmas in the church is called Advent. It's the season of waiting and preparation for the arrival of Jesus. And what Sharon points out to us is in this season of Advent, we don't experience comfort and control answers, certainty, and resolution. The people who lived that season of waiting for Jesus to come, they didn't experience any of those things. The thing is, we want to have a story. We want to have lives that include clarity and certainty and comfort and control. If we were to envision a year, we go, man, you know, I just want clarity for the future. I just would love some more certainty. Comfort would be nice. I love the feeling of being in control. We would love to have a story. How many of us have said, I'm so excited for 2021, and this is the story you want for 2021? Well, so often the story we actually get is silence, uncertainty, disorientation, disillusionment, uncertainty, and waiting. So often the story we got in 2020, it was these things. This is what Zachariah lived for 10 months while he was quiet. He wanted this, but he got this. And then he remembered the words of the angel who said, God heard your prayer. And the message that Zechariah got in the midst of his weariness from the silence and the uncertainty and the disorientation and the disillusionment and the uncertainty and the waiting, the answer that, Eli- that Zechariah got was, God is real. He's heard you. And he cares for you. And it was as if the angel was saying to Zechariah, is that enough? It's the question I have for you. God's real. God cares. God hears you. Is that enough in your weariness? Is it enough to know that God's real and he cares for you and he hears you? And is that enough to embrace and rejoice in this year? It was for a man named Zachariah, because when he could speak again, nothing but praise, nothing but rejoicing, nothing but worship. I want to give you a chance to take some next steps with this message today. And one of the next steps you could take is sending us a question. If you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, you could put a question in the chat. Let us know about it. When the service is over, we're going to be on YouTube taking some questions. But here's the first next step I want you to consider to embrace silence and solitude. 
embrace silence and solitude. What Zechariah did was he embraced silence and solitude. Now there's a big difference between isolation and quiet and silence and solitude. None of us like things when it's really quiet or things where we're isolated, but some of us have begun to discover that God does incredible things in our lives in silence and in solitude. And again, Sharon Miller has something awesome to say about this. She says, waiting is a Christian discipline, a practice that depending on how we do it, it either transforms or malforms our souls. You know this. You've seen two people wait through, struggle through, silence, solitude, and some of them have come out of it better. Some of them have come out of it bitter. What if in this season you embraced the silence and the solitude God has brought in your life like Zechariah did and you asked him to meet you in it and make you better because of it? Because if you don't, you're not going to be better. Chances are you're going to be bitter. Here's the second next step. Speak hope in the face of evil. Speak hope in the face of evil. Yes, things are difficult. Things are hard. There are very real things happening in the world that seem dark. But here's what Zechariah did in the face of his evil. He said, because of God's merciful compassion, this is what he said when he could start talking. Because of God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in the darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. What Zechariah does is he speaks about hope and light and faith and the work of God while not ignoring the darkness, while not ignoring the shadow of death they were living in. And I love what the theologian Fleming Rutledge says. He says, the great theme of Advent is hope, but it is not tolerable to speak of hope unless we are willing to look squarely at the overwhelming presence of evil in our world. This is going to be a Christmas where we talk about hope, where we celebrate and rejoice in what God has done, but it is also a year that we are going to talk about the weariness and the darkness and the difficulty. We're going to hold together the rejoicing and the weariness. And so if you're like, oh, you're just going to want to be a pie in the sky. No, no, we're going to talk about real life, but we're not going to go dark. We're going to talk about real life with hope. And we're going to encourage each other to speak hope in the face of evil, in the face of darkness. Here's the final next step. Rejoice because God has heard your prayers. I want to invite you today, no matter what circumstances you're looking down the barrel of the rest of this year and in the start of the new year, no matter what bad news you've got this week, I want to encourage you to rejoice. And even right now, as I'm recording this, I'm having to practice this too because my kids just came back home for the third time. I did the math today in the shower. They will have been doing school at home by the end of this year for over 20 weeks. They will have spent more weeks off of school or at home than they spent weeks at school and not at home this year. And that's hard. And there's lots of reasons why I could not rejoice this Christmas season. But the one reason that I can is because God has heard my prayers again and again. 
And the story of Christmas is this powerful reminder that God heard the prayers of his people then and God heard the prayers of his people today. And that is the reason that this weary man and our weary world can rejoice. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you hear our prayers. It doesn't always feel like it. Sometimes it's hard to believe it. Sometimes concerns and questions and wrestling raises up in us. And some of us, if we're, if we're being honest today as we watch, we have dealt with doubt. But I believe that you have shown me and you have shown us this year the same truth that you showed Zachariah. That you're real, that you care, and that you hear our prayers. And in the middle of everything that we're facing, Jesus, that's a reason to rejoice. That is a reason to rejoice. So I pray for the people who are watching, who are weary, that you would show them today, that you would show them this week through this story that they may be so familiar with that it's, it's hard to see anymore. They may see through this story that they're maybe hearing for the very first time that you hear their prayers, that you're at work, even though they may not be able to see it, even though it's hard to believe it. And I pray that they would trust you in humility, even when you don't meet all of their expectations. In Jesus' name we pray.